Uh, we're kicking off the new year with a new teaching series called Anchored. Uh, so if you have a Bible, I want you to go ahead and turn with me to 2 Peter chapter 1. And I'd like to begin this morning by reading verses 16 through 21. Our sermon this morning is titled Anchored in Scripture. 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 16 to 21. This is what it says. For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was borne to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven, for we were with him on the holy mountain. And we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed, to which you will do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place, until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation, for no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. This is the Word of God. Well, I grew up in a Christian home in the 90s, which meant that a very large percentage of my early discipleship was conducted at the hands of a man by the name of Salty the Singing Songbook. Does anyone else remember Salty? Yeah, come on. For those of you who don't know Salty, Salty was a guy dressed up as a giant blue songbook, the book of Psalms, I believe, and he had many songs in his repertoire, many of which would probably drive us all insane now. Uh, But there's one particular song that he would sing that I can remember even to this day. It went like this. Yeah, I'm going to sing to start the year. Come on. The B-I-B-L-E, that's the book for me. I stand alone on the word of God, the B-I-B-L-E. Hey! And then it got faster, the B-I-B-L-E, that's the book for me. I stand alone on the word of God, the B-I-B-L-E. And on and on and on it would go. Thank you very much. And look, at the time when I was quite young, I just thought it was good, clean fun. I was singing along with Salty, right? But it's, it's only now that I realise that Salty, the singing songbook, was implanting in my heart a doctrine that I'd be prepared to argue is the single most important doctrine of the Christian faith, the doctrine of Scripture. And the reason I'm convinced it's the most important doctrine is because every other doctrine dissipates into thin air without the premise that the Bible is our sole anchor and authority for all Christian belief and practice. You see, someone may say, I believe in God. Cool. Which God? The the God of the Bible or God of your own imagination? Someone may say they believe in Jesus. I would ask, which Jesus? The Jesus of the Bible or the Jesus who's just a prophetic contemporary of Muhammad? Someone may say they believe in the gospel. And again, I would ask, which gospel? Is it a false gospel of works-based righteousness or the biblical gospel of salvation by grace alone through faith alone? You see, every Christian doctrine, be it the deity of Christ, the virgin birth, the resurrection of the dead, the justification by faith alone, you name it, they can only be deemed doctrine if it is directly derived from the scriptures. St. Augustine, he said it this way, Faith will totter if the authority of the divine scriptures begins to waver. 
And sadly, in every generation, this wavering manifests itself in a new form, right? In, in every generation throughout the history of the church, something else wants to take the seat of Scripture and establish itself as the new chief. In the medieval church, it was Rome who said, no, we're above Scripture. The church sits above Scripture and not the other way around. It's often still taught today. Or off the back of the Enlightenment, science became the new chief. And science was allowed to write off anything supernatural in in the Bible as though it was just the naivety of the past. That was the chief, particularly in the 20th century. But in our day, the authority of Scripture is facing what I believe is one of its most challenging adversaries it's ever faced. And that's the authority of self. You see, I shared over the Christmas series that we live in an age that is suspicious of all claims of absolute truth. It prefers to think of truth as being something relative to the individual, right? We live in a world that thinks it's absolutely true that there's no such thing as absolute truth, which is quite self-defeating when you think about it. But then even if someone does decide to approach a historical text like the Bible, they do so through a very curious lens, and it's a lens not known to previous generations, You see, older generations would approach the Bible and ask the question, what was the author trying to convey when they wrote this? What were they trying to say to their original audience? They acknowledged that the key to interpretation was to get inside the head of the author. But in our day, we subscribe to something more postmodern, something that's influenced by reader response theory that effectively says, I don't give a rip what the author intended. The, The power of interpretation is in my hands. And I will interpret this text as I see fit relative to my own historical context. Rather than deriving meaning from a text, which is called exegesis, we impose meaning, our own meaning, on a text, which is called eisegesis. And we suffer an allergic reaction to authority. But what the Apostle Peter highlights for us in this text today is that this notion of absolute authoritative standards as derived by the Bible is not something for us to be suspicious of, but something for us to delight in. The the authority of Scripture is not just some man-derived dogma snatched out of thin air, as if the early church thought, oh, look, we need a holy book, let's get a few letters together and slap a sacred sticker on it. Like That's not how it transpired. Scripture is our authority by virtue of its divine inspiration. This is no ordinary book. It's a book that the Apostle Paul says is breathed out by God. And the message that this book contains from Genesis right through to Revelation, namely the message of the gospel, is not to be relegated to the category of fairy tales and ghost stories. The gospel is a historically reliable revelation that is grounded in the eyewitness testimony of the apostles and the testimony of the Old Testament Hebrew scriptures. Herman Barvink said it this way, He's a Dutch theologian. He says, Because religion pertains to our salvation and is related to our eternal interests, we can be satisfied with nothing less than divine authority. We must not only know that Scripture is the historical record of our knowledge of Christianity and that it most accurately contains and reproduces the original Christian ideas, but in religion we must know that Scripture is the word and truth of God. Without this certainty, there is for us no comfort either in life or death. There is, in fact, only one ground on which the authority of Scripture can be based, and that is its inspiration. That's that God-breathedness. When that goes, also the authority of Scripture is gone and done with. In that case, it is merely a body of human writings, 
which as such cannot rightfully assert any claim to be a norm for our faith and conduct. All subsequent attempts to recover some kind of authority, say, in the person of Christ, in the church, in religious experience, in the intellect or conscience, end in disappointment. We need the inspired word of God. So let's get stuck in. Let's read verses 16 through 18 again. This is what Second uh, Peter says. For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was borne to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased, we ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven, for we were with him on the holy mountain." don't think it's any secret that the Christian faith is never in shortage of critics and opponents. It's true of our day, and it was certainly true in the Apostle Peter's day. And one of the criticisms that continues to surface throughout the history of the church is this idea that, at the end of the day, Jesus hasn't returned yet. He ascended to heaven early in the first century. We were promised that he would return in the same way that he came. And nearly 2,000 years later, he's not here yet. We still haven't seen him. And this, uh, this has been wrestled out in the academy, especially last century. Where is Jesus? Uh, the Apostle Peter was wrestling against it in his own day too. It's, it's actually a big part of the backdrop of this letter. Jump over to chapter 3. Look at verses 1 through 4. He says, This is now the second letter that I am writing to you, beloved. In both of them I am stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder that you should remember the predictions of the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord and Saviour through your apostles, Knowing this, first of all, here's the kicker, that scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing. Thanks, Pete. Scoffers will come with scoffing. Wouldn't have figured that out. Following their own sinful desires, they will say, where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. Where is Jesus? It's something we've had to wrestle out in our time, and it was happening in Peter's time. And you think about it, 2 Peter was probably written somewhere between AD 64 and AD 67. So about 35 years after the ascension, the scoffing started. How would they have felt 2,000 years later? But that's how early people began this scoffing. And it's most likely that, that they were accusing Peter and the other apostles of basically making up the doctrine of Christ's return, basically to try and coerce the church into behaving themselves. He's coming back, so you better behave. And that's what they were accusing Peter of. It was a kind of a manipulative tool in their mind. But how's Peter going to respond to that criticism? Well, he does a couple of things. In chapter 3, verse 8, he says, Hey, look, let's not overlook the fact that with the Lord, one day is a thousand years, and a thousand years is as one day. It's worth noting. But in the passage that we're looking at today, Peter actually does something quite different. He says, No, 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 the, the powerful coming, the, the return of Christ, is not some cleverly devised myth used to coerce the church. It's a promise that you can take to the bank because I saw the teaser trailer. That's what Peter says. Now, I'm not an expert, but I've read a fair bit on eschatology. It's a little bit of a hobby horse for me. Pete often gives me a little bit of rip for it, but it's what I enjoy. In fact, I spent my holidays reading a book. It was a commentary on the book of Revelation. I'm telling you, I had every intention of reading fiction while I was away, but what can I say? I couldn't help myself. This was my reading over the holidays. Um, but there's something in our passage today that I hadn't seen before in my readings on eschatology. I actually found it somewhat perplexing at first. Like, Of all the things Peter could have latched onto 
to defend the return of Jesus Christ, he latches on to the transfiguration. Why? I, me personally, I probably would have quoted something from the Olivet Discourse. You know, that's probably where I would have gone. Maybe talk about the resurrection of Lazarus or the resurrection of Jesus. Surely you would latch on to something else to defend his return. But no, Peter says, I'm going to tell you about the transfiguration. Peter says, I know his majesty will return because I've seen his majesty before. Let's have a look at the transfiguration. This is Matthew 16, uh, verse 27 through to 17, 6. And I want to read it in context with a little bit of uh, Matthew 16 involved. This is what Jesus said. This is what Matthew says. For the Son of Man is going to come with his angels in the glory of his Father, and then he will repay each person according to what he has done. Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. And after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John his brother and led them up a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them. And his face shone like the sun, and his clothes became white as light. And behold, there appeared to them Moses and Elijah talking with him. And Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it is good that we are here. If you wish, I will make three tents here. One for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. He was still speaking when, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them. And a voice from the cloud said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. When the disciples heard this, they fell on their faces and were terrified. You see, in this passage, Jesus promises that he will return in glory to judge the world. But then he also says that, in the lifetime of just a small, handfuls, a small handful of his disciples, Peter, James, and John, they will get a taste of the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. When did they get that taste? The transfiguration. They saw Jesus in all his glory. The transfiguration is a fulfillment of the promise that they would see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. And in our passage today, Peter recalls this event and says, I was there on the holy mountain. I know who this guy is. I have seen his glory. I have tasted the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. It was both glorious and terrifying. And I'm telling you, he's coming back. I saw it. That's why Peter latches on to the transfiguration. Listen, it's no secret that 2020 hit us all like a ton of bricks. It wasn't fun. Good riddance to 2020. But as morbid as it might sound, there's no guarantee that 2021 will be any better. At the end of the day, what came after 1939? 1940. The war hadn't ended. We still had to register our details to come to church this morning. COVID is still a thing. We don't know what 2021 will hold for us. There might be more lockdowns. Illness might visit your family. Grief might come knocking at your door, but... Linda prayed it before. In this life, we will meet trials of various kinds. But straight off the bat, let's be reminded here from Second Peter that no matter what happens this year, our faith is not some cleverly devised myth. Jesus came and lived a perfect life that we couldn't live, died on the cross for our sins where we should have died, and he promises to return in glory to usher us into the new heavens and the new earth. And we can have this assurance. We can take it to the bank because it's grounded in Scripture. Let's read verses 19 to 21 again. Peter says, And we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed, 
to which you will do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts, knowing this first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Now one of the things we have to be cautious of as believers is letting our experiences dictate our theology. Now, occasionally it's appropriate. I mean, if you see someone miraculously healed after someone's laid hands on them and prayed for them, it's a pretty good case to say that the gifts continue today. In that sense, I think letting your experience dictate your theology is reasonable, right? But more often than not, um, it gets us into trouble. People can say things like this. Oh, look, I know the Bible says don't be unequally yoked, but my my Christian mate Tomo, uh, he he married a non-believer, and after about three years, eventually she came to Christ. It all worked out in the end. See, God permitted it. it. It was fine. The experience trumped the word of God. We do things like this all the time. So we have to be cautious in letting our experiences dictate our theology. But what if you're an apostle? You see, this principle of not letting your experiences dictate your theology wasn't quite the same for the apostles because Peter here seems to be saying the exact opposite. He says, we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed. What's he saying? He's saying that in addition to the Old Testament scriptures that promised the coming of Jesus, me and my fellow apostles have had hands and feet in the trenches, seen, heard, touched, and dined with experience of Jesus. We have personally encountered the one whom the Old Testament spoke of. Three of us saw the transfiguration and all of us saw him resurrected. We have the prophetic word more fully confirmed. Now, you and I weren't at the transfiguration. You and I didn't see the resurrected Christ, nor are we apostles. But we hold in our hand the inscripturated eyewitness testimony of the apostles. That's what the New Testament is, effectively. In other words, Peter told the first century church to pay attention to the Old Testament and the apostolic eyewitness testimony. But the application for us in the 21st century is to pay attention to the Old Testament and the New Testament. You see, the eyewitness testimony of the apostles was still in the process of being inscripturated when Peter wrote this epistle. Okay? Look at uh, 2 Peter 3, later on in the book, verses 15 to 16. This is fascinating. Let's read it slowly. And count the patience of our Lord as salvation, just as our beloved brother Paul also wrote to you according to the wisdom given him, as he does in all his letters. All right, let's pause there. There are a bunch of letters circling around the Mediterranean when Peter wrote this. The letters that you and I now find in our Bible. They weren't in one compiled volume when Peter wrote, but they were circulating around the Mediterranean. So Peter is aware of the fact that there are letters circulating written by Paul. When he speaks in them of these matters, there are some things in them that are hard to understand. Okay, So clearly Peter has read Romans, all right? which the ignorant and unstable twist to their own destruction is the kicker, as they do the other scriptures. Whoa. Did you catch that last bit? By referring to the Old Testament as the other scriptures, it logically follows that Peter views Paul's circulating letters as also being in the same category, the category of divinely inspired sacred scripture. 
That is a huge statement for a first century Jew to make. That's not something any Jew would say lightly. And he goes on to say that it is to this combined testimony of the Old Testament and the New Testament that we are to pay attention to as a lamp shining in a dark place. Look, it, it doesn't take a genius to recognize that the world is a dark place. We, we live in a world that murders babies and calls it women's rights. We live in a world that believes gender is a state of mind and not a biological reality. Our world is in a perpetual state of removing every moral stop sign and traffic light and we're mournfully just watching the carnage unfold before our eyes. In the world we live in, you better believe we're going to need to be anchored in the word of God. But I think that's, relatively speaking, quite obvious. I think for us, we need to be aware that darkness is often not just an external reality to the church, but regrettably an internal reality. In fact, if you read the flow of the argument that Peter's making in this epistle, that's precisely where he goes next. Peer over to chapter 2, verse 1. Peter says, But false prophets also arose among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you, who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them, bringing upon themselves swift destruction. What's Peter saying? He's saying that not every book at Kurong is worth purchasing. Honestly, some of them would be better used as firewood or toilet paper. Now that sounds harsh, but why do I say that? Well, some of them, like Peter says, they're full of destructive heresies that can lead people astray. We need to be a discerning people. But in terms of our own Bible reading, there's other more, for want of a better term, innocent forms of darkness. I really wanted a better term for that, but that can kind of plague our own Bible reading. For example, one that we often see is a false dichotomy between the spirit and the word. Something that pops up quite a bit. You can be having a well-intended, good-spirited, biblical discussion with your brothers and sisters in Christ, which I've had many and thoroughly enjoyed, and you can be discussing the scriptures and then someone will throw down the ultimate exegetical trump card. Um, I call your knowledge of the Greek language in the first century Judaism, but I raise you, the Spirit told me so. You see, I remember going through a tricky patch in my uh, late teenage life, and I was endeavouring to keep seeking God in his word and having fellowship with him in that sense, but I was doing more Bible reading than I'd ever done. And I approached someone about it, someone close to me, and though I know they really meant well, they had my best intentions at heart, they said this, I said, look, mate, you're reading the Bible a lot, which is great, but look, the word is good, but the spirit is better. Sorry, what do we mean when we make statements like that? It's true. It's possible. It's not possible, not possible to read Scripture as the word of God without the Holy Spirit. Not possible. Even the Westminster Confession of Faith says it this way. It's one of the most reformed documents on the planet. He says, we may be moved and induced by the testimony of the church to a high and reverent esteem of the Holy Scripture and the heavenliness of the matter, the efficacy of the doctrine, the majesty of the style, the consent of all the parts, the scope of the whole, the full discovery it makes of the only way of man's salvation, the many other incomparable excellencies and the entire perfection thereof are arguments whereby it does abundantly evidence itself to be the word of God. What are they saying? You can study 
how the canon of Scripture was developed, and it's a worthy study. I encourage you to do it. But let's read the rest of it. Yet notwithstanding our full persuasion and assurance of the infallible truth and divine authority thereof is from the inward work of the Holy Spirit bearing witness by and with the word in our hearts. It's effectively saying what Jesus said in John 10, my sheep know my voice. How do I know the Bible is the word of God? I, I just recognize the voice of my shepherd. I can't explain it. it. It's quite supernatural to know that the Bible is in fact the authoritative word of God. It's supernatural. But though it is the inward work of the Spirit that bears witness in our hearts as we read, it does not follow follow that we suddenly abandon every other principle of interpretation and throw all of our eggs in the basket of subjectivity. Michael Horton, he highlights that too often we confuse illumination with inspiration or we divorce illumination from inspiration. Let me explain what I mean. You see, when the authors of the Bible wrote their respective volumes, that's the category of inspiration. They were carried along by the Holy Spirit as they wrote. I'll explain more of that in a moment. But when you and I read Scripture with the help of the Spirit, we're not talking about inspiration or revelation, but illumination. In other words, the Holy Spirit isn't telling you anything new as such, as if you needed to go and grab a pen and write down the 67th book of the Bible. But the Spirit of God working in you brings to life that which has already been said. And I know there would be people in this room who would testify to the fact that as you've read the Bible, it's as if the words have left off the page and suddenly Paul is speaking directly to you. It's quite supernatural when it happens. Amen to that. But that's the category of illumination. But we also must remember... The Holy Spirit is far too good a Bible scholar to, to take something out of context. <laughs> okay, He's a really good exegete. The illumination he brings is always in alignment with the author's inspiration. When the Spirit, What the Spirit illumines in your heart will always match the intent of the biblical author. The Spirit and the Word are not a false dichotomy. They're dancing to the same tune. Michael Horton said it this way. I thought it was quite clever. The Spirit is not involved in freelance missions. Illumination and inspiration. We have both and we need both. But let me say a little bit more on inspiration. Peter says that men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Now, what exactly does that mean? Are we saying that the apostles were in some kind of Holy Spirit induced trance and like couldn't control their limbs as though they turned to each other and said, What did we eat this morning? My hand has been moving at 100 miles an hour all morning. I can't stop writing epistles. Are we. Is that what we're saying when they were carried along by the Holy Spirit? Something uncontrollable? Certainly not. You see, no, although God sovereignly superintended the writing of Scripture and the final product that we have is the inerrant Word of God, God still preserves the humanness, the creatureliness, that's a big word, creatureliness of the writing. Such that you can read Paul, and funnily enough, it sounds like Paul. You, you can read Romans and Galatians, both written by Paul, and go, yeah, that's how Paul uses the word law. He, he said that earlier. I can actually use the two, and ah, that's difficult to understand in Romans. I'm going to see what he said in Galatians. And I can read Paul like Paul. 
Another example, we, we don't know who wrote the book of Hebrews. It's been lost in time. We can take reasonable guesses, but at the end of the day, we don't know who wrote Hebrews. But most scholars would say it certainly wasn't Paul. Why? Doesn't sound like him. The Greek is actually too far polished. Paul, pretty smart guy. He's Greek, not too bad, but not book of Hebrews good. That was someone a little bit more educated in, uh, and very more articulate with the Greek language. Luke's gospel and the book of Acts have clearly been written by a very well-educated physician, which Luke was. Mark's gospel, quite the opposite. It's kind of the original ghetto gospel. It's like written in layman Greek, right? I speak of the Greek good. It's not particularly well put together. But God in his sovereignty has preserved the humanness of it. The, the literary styles, the vocabulary has all been preserved and yet it's still the authoritative, inerrant word of God. You see, the authors aren't inspired, but the final product they've given us is. And I find that really encouraging. God has given us his word in a form that suits our capacity to understand. His word is not ambiguous, okay? It's not a a book of secret codes that has four layers and only the elite can read layers three and four as some have taught in church history. Oh, it's true. The Apostle Peter said a moment ago, there are some things that Paul writes that are difficult to understand. Granted. But for the most part, Scripture is actually quite clear. It's, it's what theologians have often called the perspicuity of Scripture. That is to say that, for the most part, its meaning is plain and simple. Now, I've only been a pastor for 18 months, and I can only say, honestly say that one of the most encouraging things I've experienced in my 18 months has been that on occasion, doesn't happen all the time, I've delivered a sermon on a Sunday and I get a text message from a parent saying, thank you so much for your sermon. My kids got so much out of that this morning. Sorry, what? How? I was using big words like transfiguration and perspicuity. How did your eight-year-old understand that? I'll tell you why. Meaning of scripture is plain. A child can read it. And understand it. A child can hear the words of Almighty God and understand them. I promise you, that's nothing in me. That's the power and perspicuity of Scripture dancing in the hearts of children here at the project. D.A. Carson, my favorite scholar, he tells the story of a man who was driving in his car one day, listening to an audio Bible. He had his very young son, somewhere in the order of six or seven years old sitting in the passenger seat, and the audio Bible was playing the book of Revelation, right? And this man kind of paused for a moment, and he thought, oh, this is pretty intense. Should I turn it off for my young son? There's a lot of dragons, beasts, and a whole lot of other stuff going on in Revelation. It it might scare him. It might go over his head. Maybe I should turn it over. But he said, you know what? Let's give it a crack. They listened to the entire book, all 22 chapters of the book of Revelation, All the dragons, beasts, white horses, lake of fire, all of it, right? And after all that, the man kind of hesitantly turned to his son and he said, So so son, did you did you understand what you just heard? Like what what did you get out of it? And the son said, Yeah, I get it. God wins. God wins. And you know what? He nailed it right on the head. That is precisely the message of Revelation. The church triumphs via suffering and God ultimately wins. I had to read a commentary on 
the holidays, but this kid nailed it in a couple of words. He's killing it. Right? That's the perspicuity of Scripture. I believe it was Spurgeon who said these words. The Bible is shallow enough for a child not to drown, yet deep enough for an elephant to swim. That's the book we have. It's quite supernatural. Now listen, I, I don't think it's any secret that from time to time I'm somewhat of a raging Protestant. All right? I, I get it. But perhaps one of the biggest quarrels I have with the Church of Rome is that parishioners in these congregations are often discouraged from reading the Bible. I have dear relatives in their 70s who've not read it because they dare not read it. That's only for the clergy, they're told. But I think that is such a tragic departure from what Jesus would invite us to participate in regularly and personally, having fellowship with him through the means of his written word. He said it in John 17, sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. Why doesn't the band come and join me? Peter says that it's this inspired word that we must pay attention to until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. That is, we pay attention to the Old Testament and the New Testament until Jesus gets back. This book is our guide. Now there will come a day when Jesus returns, all things will be made new, and the joy of eternal life, though eternal life certainly begins now, it will be infinitely more glorious when Jesus gets back. But in the interim, our most sure anchor... Our, our primary means of grace during our pilgrimage is the Word of God. Without the anchor of Scripture, your relationship with Jesus is just a bizarre episode of dating in the dark, not knowing who he is and how we can relate to him. Michael Horton said it this way, His Word is both the rod that parts the waters of death so that we may pass through safely and the scepter or staff by which he keeps us under his care until we reach the other side. So let me land the plane this morning on a practical tarmac by asking this question. What will your engagement with the Word of God look like in 2021? Will you be anchored in Scripture? Now, please don't hear this. I think anytime you do a sermon on reading the Bible or prayer, it can sound like flagellation. Go home and read the Bible, right? We're not saying that. Don't hear it as flagellation, hear it as invitation. An invitation to a dynamic, personal relationship with Jesus through his word.